Say It Loud Network and Mean Old Line Media presents the history of being Black. Welcome to another episode of the history of being Black. I am Eunice Elliott, and I am the lucky girl that gets to talk to some of the smartest people on the planet. And even better than talking to some of the smartest people on the planet, I get to talk about Black folks. And white folks, uh, uh, but mostly black folks, the history of being black. And it's so much that we know, so much that we don't know, and so much that we are still writing day to day as far as being black folks here in America. Today, I'm joined by, doc- by Dr. Gloria J. Wilson. She is assistant professor of art and visual culture education at the University of Arizona. Welcome to today's episode, Dr. Wilson. Thank you. It's good to be back. <laughs> I really enjoyed our last conversation. You have such a unique perspective from when we're talking about cultural appropriation, primarily also in arts and entertainment. And I really want to focus on our arts and entertainment piece, because uh, in an earlier episode, you were talking about Birth of a Nation that came out in 1915, silent film, but basically the black man was set up as the boogeyman. And that story has been retold in so many different ways, whether it's on movies, televisions, music, or the evening news. And so talk to me about how Black folks' racial identity has been crafted from white folks and how it still perpetuates today. Sure, absolutely. Um, So it, it, you know, I think maybe the closest um, word that I can apply um, to how we understand or how we might understand how racial identity has been constructed through the white lens um, is to create uh, a stereotype. And so essentially, you know, I think um, people understand, you know, maybe stereotypes at sort of the surface level that we think about stereotypes as being something inherently bad. And we think of we think of how a stereotype is highlighting one particular characteristic of a human being and amplifying that. And as it applies to Black people, we talked about, you know, sort of the images that were that were created prior to the, the turn of the 20th century, even like you can go back as far as the mid 19th century. So in the 1800s, and you can look at paintings and, and look at Black subject matter within a white, a white dominated figurative painting, meaning white people in the painting. And then you'll have maybe one arbitrary black human being placed in the corner, um, very dark skin, pronounced red lips, you know, huge saucer eyes. Um, and, and not only that, not only the visual of that as being um, the groundwork for a narrative for how black people would then continue to be portrayed, um, but also the position within the painting, you know, and so off to the side, right? So they're, 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 um, you could consider that as, um, window dressing, maybe, right? Right. Um, which, you know, we can apply that logic, you know, to, to many other, uh, cultural productions, um, visual cultural productions. Um, but again, so you advance forward and if you just look at the traditional canon of the fine art world and you look at paintings, this type of subject was repeated often, you know, and so it might have been the black figure dancing a jig, okay, um, in the middle of a circle of men who have just come back from the war, right? So you're setting up this narrative and it continued to happen across time until black folks were then given access to the art world and 
and providing either counter narratives to, you know, what had been produced before. But we also have to understand that there were strategies that Black people at that time, and I would argue still, uh, deploy in order to navigate um, a white-dominated world. So even if it's the, it could be the art world, it could be within, you know, an actual composed production of a film, you know, how do you not only navigate entering into those spaces, but what is the narrative that you want to tell that may do away with this, you know, obvious myopic trope of blackface and the caricature, you know, the black person, you know, not only as someone that you should be afraid of, but someone who's a source of entertainment. I mean, there's so many, there's so many tropes, you know, that we can identify that have been produced at the hands of white creators. And what's, what's interesting is when you talk about the tropes, it's like all of them. So they go from uh, perpetuating or presenting the black man as the big bad monster, but also scary and superstitious and shaking in his boots or the black woman as undesirable, but also overly sexualized. And Absolutely. so you're doing all of these things at the same time, yep. somehow, Absolutely. some way. Right. And what's right. interesting is even when you talk about the white dominated media and when you think about white folks being the minority on the planet, it's no surprise that black folks will be in the corner as window dressing when they manipulated an entire planet's depiction to try to sing bigger, like actual land masses misrepresented on a map Absolutely. to, to, to tell you we're big and you're small. Absolutely. Um, and so where does the, the insanity end? So when you talk about Black folks coming in and starting to tell the narrative, how much of it is then we are telling their story versus telling our true story? Absolutely. Right. And so then then comes the question of looking at our own education and a- acknowledging that we don't know what we don't know. And so if our history is not narrated in you know, I remember what was it? Eighth grade taking Alabama history. I, I don't remember ninth grade. I don't remember. I don't remember. But what what is being taught? You know, in world history, we weren't we didn't study the diaspora in no. American history. You know, so we get a very a very narrow we get a very narrow story. But how do we as Black people know that our story is missing if it has not been shared with us? You know, and so then we get into, you know, I think um, the generation prior to mine, you know, parents or grandparents who grew up, you know, during a very particular moment in American history who cannot talk about the atrocities and will not talk about the atrocities. And so that leaves a gap in our knowledge. And we as, you know, brown, black and brown people have deep, deep oral traditions you know, there are groups of people who are writers, we're storytellers, right? And so if we know that about ourselves, um, how does the trauma disrupt and interrupt the stories that we can share with our future generations? You know, and do we even have that understanding that telling the story is important? Um it's important on many levels, you know, which wraps back around to identity, you know, and how one can feel connected to um, connected to a culture and connected to a way of being. And, and, and you know, I, I believe that black people have natural expressive proclivities, meaning 
we're good at certain things, but how do we know that those things that we're good at is inherent through our DNA or that we just submerge them because we think they're weird because someone else has told us that we shouldn't be dancing, you know, as a means of meditation. Right. I'm just saying, so, dancing brings me joy. It, it is so much that we suppress it naturally as a part of us because it might not be a part of American society as we know it or accepted society. You said something mm-hmm. interesting that I've never really thought about in the way of the the story or the history. Okay, so we're talking about the history of of being black, but so much of the actual history is never told because the perpetrators of some of the the atro- all the atrocities don't tell the story. And the people who suffered the atrocities won't tell the story, can't tell the story. Right, right. And, and to think that then that is a whole piece of our lives that we never get. And then you have people in our generation who we don't want to see another slave movie. We don't want to see another movie about maids. We don't right. want to talk about that anymore. Absolutely. And so, so much of our culture and our history is being erased consciously and unconsciously. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, the importance of archiving, even recipes. Um, I have a friend in in Nashville, you know, that I met when I was teaching in Tennessee, who, you know, we would talk about food. And then he asked me the question, you know, have you written down the recipe for your dad's gumbo? And I'm like, "Mm, you know, why would I do that? And he's like, "Mm, why would you not do that? You know, and so these are things that you know, again, I stood in the kitchen and watched my father make it. So, you know, that that's a way of learning and a way of knowing, but it isn't necessarily physically archived anywhere other than in my memory, you know, and hopefully my memory will be good for a while. But even, you know, understanding um, sources of documentation and how we can leave breadcrumbs for those that come behind us, you know, I, I, I you know, come across these stories um, of black people that are just so fascinating, you know, to learn about um, their interior lives, you know, sort of the mundane and everyday, you know, our stories don't have to be fantastical. You know, um, I was listening to a conversation between some grad students about, you know, the notion of uh, black girl magic, you know, and how on the one hand, that's amazing. But on the other hand, are we taking on you know, a yet another burden that we have to be everything and, and all things, like you said, to all people, you know. And so there, there's I can't think of the person's name who, you know, sort of counteracts that with um, the notion of black or ordinary, which is fine. You know, that's, what that's happens- more than fine, because right. just by definition, the ordinary just is not that ordinary. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So being magic. And I think I think the, the literal term of magic is is sometimes what throws people off from that term. But when you talk about the, like even the recipe, your dad's uh, mm-hmm. recipe, I think back to the generational wealth that white folks tend to enjoy and the generational curses we tend to inherit. And so how much of it is because so much of what our ancestors had was destroyed, if they right. had anything. I don't think even to this day that we're overly attached to passing something on or leaving Mm -hmm. something. Sure. There it is. Yes, absolutely. It's just not our conditioning where our counterparts, you know, have the the family tree and they have the traditions and, and, you know, they have the the names they will pass down and then you'll inherit this. And, And to this day, we aren't even starting so many of those new traditions for ourselves. 
because it's just not something we were taught or given. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I and I even wonder, you know, when I think about traditions that, you know, perhaps could be a Western, a Westernized tradition. You know, I wonder, you know, when we talk about um, this notion of decolonizing something, decolonizing education or, um, you know, sort of turning a system on its head, um, even if it's metaphorically, um, does that point us in any direction to understand that maybe that wasn't even the way that we operated? You know, so when do we know something um, is inherently a cultural practice, you know, passed on, um, you know, the our umbilical cord was severed, you know, when we came through that middle passage. And so how how do we know? Again, it goes back to how do we know um, what it is that we're doing um, is sort of part of our DNA or whether it's learned you know, so I think about the notion of, you know, um, what you said about leaving something behind, right? So if we think about the U.S. as a landmass, people who took the land and that it was founded on property rights. So the notion of property, which then connects us to humans as property. And those First Nations people who were here lived with the land. They did not take from the land, they lived with the land in sort of a symbiotic relationship. And so what what if that is our, our own practice as well? And so how much of, you know, these other practices are we adopting that are reinscribing, you know, the colonial mindset? I mean, it's just interesting to think about, you know, because it just keeps perpetuating. Right. And so then Mm -hmm. if you say when we didn't have anything to leave behind, a lot of times they would leave slaves behind for their children or they would leave the slaves in their will. Um, And we we today will still be the employees, you know, versus the owners. Absolutely. I mean, so much of it is that we think, hey, we got a good job. I'm doing well. And we're not realizing how much of this. It was rooted in, as you said, through the Middle Passage. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So then what, what, what can we do today? Like, So the point of this conversation is for us to be awakened to things we've never thought about before. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. can we try to right the ship, or even if we can't right that particular ship, put a new ship in a new, a new path, a new journey? Sure. Um, so as I guess as it relates to maybe um, what we started the conversation with, um, which is, you know, who, who's producing these visualizations? Of, of human life um, and humans as categorized by race. Um, I think about, you know, at least three moments in the last century plus um, where Black people were sort of um, having agency over their lives, you know, and so I think about the Harlem Renaissance and the creatives who were, you know, writers, who were musicians, who were painters. I mean, that is such a rich part of our history, you know, that we talk about, but I wonder, you know, again, we're not getting this information in K-12 education. And right. so where where do we get it from? You know, can we pass on the richness um, of tradition starting with the moments that um, we were the moment? I mean, we're always the moment. <laughs> we're always the moment. We, were, we, we recognize ourselves as the main character. We right. recognize ourselves as that. There it is. Absolutely. So it's sort of, I, I call it a disinterested dance, 
like, you know, when when can you um, not be interested in the white gaze? And that's a very arts term, G-A-Z-E, you know, so who's looking through the lens, you know, whether it's a camera or whether it's just somebody, you know, checking you at school um, and pivot, you know, and sort of build our own narratives and be be enriched by um, um, what what we have produced. Um, you know, so the second moment would be the Black Power Movement. And then the third moment, I think, has been happening maybe for the last 10 years. Um, and right now, you know, it, it's, um, you know, this is a moment and I'm not sure if, if the perfect storm was COVID plus, you know, the political cycle um, plus um, who our last president was. And so I think about all of those Black creatives, both known and unknown, who are producing work now that signal something different. You know, so I think about Ava DuVernay. I think about um, Issa Rae. You know, I think about Amy Sherrill, who is the visual artist who um, came into notoriety by Michelle Obama when she painted her portrait. You know, right, right. Yeah. Amy Sherrill. Right. And, and that's the thing you say, The because uh, I'm thinking of, I don't know, did you see the series on Netflix, Bridgerton? I started watching it. I started okay. watching it. So yes. I think that's one of those series um, produced by Shonda Rhimes, but not written by, not created by, but she's the executive producer, her production company. And they have melded so many different ideas and storylines beyond race, beyond time, beyond themes, to where it's almost like this utopia of if being black didn't matter. Absolutely. In the 1800s. Absolutely. Yeah. And she's one of those, right, she is one of those, in my mind, she is one of those prolific um, creatives who, so I think about Scandal, Mm -hmm. I think about How to Get Away with Murder, and she has written or helped to produce Two black women characters who defy any sort of myopic stereotype that had been created before. So you had Olivia Pope, who, you know, um, meant business. And, you know, maybe she did some sketchy stuff, but she was smart, right? Right. And she also had two guys after her. And she didn't want either one. Right. And so that's a different narrative. You know, and even um, just the visual of that narrative to seeing the black woman in the white coat being the hero, yes, yes. was powerful. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, I think some critique has come around characters, black characters that have been produced um, and created by black, you know, writers or filmmakers. So let's take Tyler Perry, for instance. You know, okay. even if you like that flavor of narrative, we should not be asking, asking or critiquing the content. We should be critiquing the systems that haven't allowed multiplicity of black people producing all at the same time. Because when one person gets the spotlight, then the vision becomes myopic. And all we can focus on is, oh my gosh, you know, why this is just going to land, you know, like some jig. If it's a rich person, he's abusive. Uh, Poor person is the good hearted person. I I agree with you wholeheartedly that a lot of the criticism Tyler Perry gets is because we are looking at his product. And so 
white people don't get a chance to tear down every white production because all of the productions are white. Absolutely. <laughs> so we'll Absolutely. get production and then we right. are hypercritical of that one production. Absolutely. And so it, it's like, okay, you know, Spike Lee had his moment, you know, with all of the films in the early, you know, in the early part of his career, you know, the Hughes brothers were along, you know, with him, they didn't get as much shine. So it's like it amplifies one person, you know, it's that magical Negro. And they have to tell every story in every way and represent every black person that has ever yeah. lived. And we Absolutely. put these pressures on when we do get the opportunity to tell the stories, but we don't hold the gatekeepers to those same standards by right. any strength of the imagination. And right. so since the gatekeepers keepers of the owners of the studios and the television mm -hmm. networks and and the streaming services now we're not anywhere talking about how we we, we are excited to have representation right but then we don't talk about how we're being represented by people who aren't us telling the story right absolutely because it, it's very different you know it, it's treated very differently you know and and i'll say this one last thing about um tyler perry's you know there there are a segment of people who no, I'm a dear. I mean, there's a segment of, you know, and so white people don't know that part about black people's interior lives unless they grew up around black people in a black household. And right. so there is a significance for what he is doing for a segment of um, black culture. Um, and so advance forward a little bit into um, the productions that um, Barry Jenkins, Moonlight. Jenkins. Barry Jenkins. Okay. Yes. And so, oh, my goodness. I I don't watch films over and over um, often, but that film I watched, I can't tell you how many times. And the treatment and care of the protagonist, the little black boy child, you know, uh -huh. throughout the entire film showed a side of black masculinity, which, of course, is, you know, a hot topic and sometimes a contested topic. But it follows... Why am I, why is his, why is the main character's name Chiron? It follows his character from, you know, boyhood into manhood. Um, and there are so many moments in that film where, you know, even when the actor who is holding him in the water, teaching him how to swim, like just the visualization of that, you know, radical care, you know, comes up in my mind when I think about that, you know, um, but showing the tender, the tender moments um, of the interior thoughts and feelings of a black child, you know, and it wasn't a light skinned black child, it was a dark skinned black child, you know, but there was so much care in the way that narrative was written. I just, you know, if there's a movie that has so moved me ever in my life, it, it was that one. You know, and and I had to write about it, um, the skin tones, the lighting, you know, and I think about even in media and how when Oprah said she first started um, doing what she did and having her show that she had no idea that her lighting could be different and needed right. to be different. Right? right. And so right. when I think about the way that, you know, lighting can happen on black skin, but has not happened and when it did happen in the production of Moonlight, it was magical. Right. It's, it's I mean, an amazing visual when black folks are well lit on absolutely. screen. I absolutely. know that's one of the things Issa Rae focuses on is the lighting in her show Insecure on HBO. And you'll see these moments of everyone's hue and skin tone and you pick up different oh, notes yeah. and glows and, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's how black people look. 
you know, Absolutely. and not just this ashy thing. I, I'm a former TV mm. news anchor and I was the only black one sitting on the desk and I would have to talk to him about the chocolate light. I would say, hey, this chocolate light is not adjusted properly. I'm right. sitting here. It can't be what it just was for my blonde co-anchor. Right. Um, and it's a conversation that I wonder how much of it we talk about representation or the Spike Lees or the Tyler Perry's or the Ava DuVernay's, but the lighting directors, Absolutely. the cinematographers, the directors Absolutely. of photography, how important Absolutely. it is for people who look like us to be able to show us the way we actually look. Absolutely. All, you know, and I, I think that's a whole nother conversation of representation behind the camera. How much ownership do we take now with so many different ways for people to tell stories, even if it's just to take out their cell phone? I do see a shift of people not waiting to be given an opportunity. But as we wrap up this particular episode, I would love for you to just talk to me a little bit about the importance of storytelling today. You know, we, we talk about the stories that have been told about us or have never been told. How important it is for us to embrace storytelling as a medium for us today. Absolutely. Absolutely. It makes me think about um, the writing of Toni <clears throat> Tony Morrison um, and how, you know, yes, her writing is difficult. I mean, it, it really is. Even as a person who reads books for a living, I go to Toni's work and I have to read one sentence probably 15 times uh -huh. before yeah. I can understand it. It's not beyond me to understand why she's not gained genius status. You know, that's another conversation. Genius tends to be awarded to white men only. Uh -huh. Um, we, we don't get that. Um, we don't get that adjective in our communities. But um, I, I think about the fact that she wrote for a black audience, even though she did not explicitly say I am writing for a black audience. But she, this is the genius of Toni Morrison. She wrote from, I believe she says, a reader's perspective. I want to write the stories that I want to read, you know, and she would often say that black people can read novels written by white people with white characters. And we can imagine ourselves in those worlds. You know, they just write as if, okay, they don't ever have to identify the characters um, and explain if, what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so even though, Toni Morrison didn't write explicitly with, you know, um, with vocabulary pointing toward blackness. We know that those stories are about black people. And so it's sort of like a, a ninja move. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, she was genius in doing that. So it's like, do not ask permission you know, produce the thing that you want to see. You know, we're, we're always talking about, you know, I, I don't see myself here. I don't, you know, I haven't seen myself here. And I'm wondering if we need to say, I'm going to create myself here. I'm going to create the space for myself. I even now push back on the notion of having the seat at the table, you know, because that's still asking permission. Right. It's still right. asking to be a part of a conversation that was not designed with us in mind. And oftentimes um, it comes at an unconscious level for white people. Like they don't even understand that that those conversations are not designed with us in mind. And so I, I would just say, yeah, look at what's being produced now. We are in such a wonderful moment. I mean, there are magazine publications that are being produced by Black people. Have you seen the um, magazine called Crown? 
CRWN. No, I haven't seen that. Just take a look at it. Okay. The imagery will blow you away. So when we talk about lighting, um, mm-hmm. when we talk about, um, you know, Black people in our most natural way, um, it just seems that that is the narrative that Crown wants to deliver, you know? I'm so looking it, at it, I'm looking at it online and I see a cover of Issa Rae, which is my girl, yes. which yeah. she kind of right now is the Black girl yes. that represents Black girls. That's Crown. It's actually C-R-W-N bag for anybody mm-hmm. listening.com uh, to pick that up. Gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And, and so yeah. that's something that we can all do is tell our stories and be be our truest version of ourselves. Because I think mm-hmm. even with social media, where we all just have this platform, whether we take it seriously or not, we're perpetuating something, right? We're telling mm-hmm. a story. So if mm-hmm. someone came from another planet and looked at what you were posting on social media, I think that could be one of our change agents for today on our mm-hmm. hashtag 21 and 21 or hashtag be the change. Start telling your actual story, not about just telling your business, but mm-hmm. represent yourself in the way that you want people to consume you mm-hmm. in all of your glory and mm-hmm. all of your wonderfulness. And mm-hmm. on my social media, I know my angles. So you ain't going to catch no yeah. bad picture, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you the story I want you to know. And you're going to have a nice angled picture attached mm-hmm. to it. Um, mm-hmm. That's just uh, whenever we speak, I, I make notes and I think of like 50 other things to talk to you about. And so hopefully you will grace us with your presence again on future episodes here Absolutely. on the history of being black. But it really is just so thought provoking thinking about how we consume, what we consume, who's producing and right. how we can all actively produce more. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I um. Yes, there's so there's so much. I mean, this is just such a um, um, it, it's such a um, I don't want to say rich topic, um, but it's so nuanced. You right. know, I mean, there's so many ways to enter this conversation. Um, and what I share with students all the time is that you know we perhaps shouldn't get stuck in thinking that um, you know the person out there has you know, all of this power and control, um, you know, by default, there are more people who um, make up the 99%, you know, the masses of the, you know, those who are not the the haves, um, that we can create a cultural shift just by making one decision. Um, and I think one beautiful example of that is what happened in the streets over the summer, last summer, you know, when people took to the streets um, and were angry for all types of reasons, you know, maybe they were out of work because of COVID. Um, Maybe they were outraged at the murder of George Floyd, you know, and Breonna Taylor, but there was a momentum there and enough people took to the streets where folks took notice. And so we have to believe ourselves as powerful Um, And we have to ask ourselves, you know, um, how much are we subscribing to this this rugged individualism that we've been enculturated into thinking about and go back to thinking about um, our collective efforts toward the cultural shift? Because, you know, Ava DuVernay's got a team, (laughs) you know, Issa Rae started on YouTube, you know, just a, a few person show. And now, you know. 
And it, and me, I, I would love to end on that. It's about our collective efforts. Um, it's so much that we can do together that that's what we need to focus on. We've seen the power in numbers. We've seen the power with the, the general election of what we can shift when we are working together. Absolutely. And so hopefully we're going to inspire folks to do more of what they can do, not only to be the change, but to work collaboratively mm-hmm. to be a, a greater change. Dr. Wilson, as always, thank you so much for being such a light to this conversation and for joining us. Uh, To our listeners, thank you so much for listening to another episode of the History of Being Black. Make sure you use the hashtag BeTheChange, hashtag 21 in 21, so we can see what you're doing to change the world. And we'll see you guys next episode. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer Lauren Turner. Edited by Ken Johnson. Executive producers Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion and say it loud network production.